0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan Macargo, director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. So it's my great pleasure today to introduce a podcast based on an event that we held at Nias uh, last year in February 2021 about getting published in Asian studies journals. All of us working in the field of Asian studies are very interested in this topic because we need to get our articles published. And what are the arcane mysteries of doing that? So I thought it would be great to invite a couple of really great editors who have been centrally involved in this business for the past few years, both of whom have been fielding many submissions. Some of you on this call may have submitted things to their journals in the past. Who knows? I certainly have submitted things to both of their journals in the past. Let me introduce our two speakers now. So Julie Chen is Professor of Chinese Studies at the University of Helsinki, which means that she's one of our Nordic NEAS Council partners and board member at NEAS, and very, very actively involved in all sorts of stuff that we do. So Julie is, like me, a political scientist by training and is working on such a wide range of issues if you look at her list of publications, but many of them cluster around something to do with minorities in China and then international relations, BRI and Things like that. So, Julie has been editing Asian Ethnicity until very recently, and she's now a co editor of the Chinese Journal of Political Science. Yeah. Yes. So, she's very experienced in this field. And then, Hyungu Lin is a veteran editor of the, the legendary Pacific Affairs, which is a journal that's been around for an awful long time, and he's been editing it since, I think, 2008. And he is Professor at University of British Columbia, working in the field of Korean studies and Japanese studies. I think you're actually a historian by training, is that right? Yes. But you actually range extremely widely in your intellectual interests. So, this is a great opportunity to have you here. And you're famous for your very detailed responses to some of the people who submit articles to your right pages and pages of incredibly detailed comments telling them what to do to straighten their articles out. So that's something that we might want to get into if you're willing to talk about the mysteries of how the process of responding to articles... It would be fantastic to hear a little bit from each of you before we get into some questions. And then I'm going to ask some what I call deliberately idiotic questions to get the ball rolling. And then we can open up to audience participation. So maybe we should start with you, Julie. Perhaps you want to tell us about your experiences of being a journal editor and what's your message to the world about how to get published in Asian Studies journals in a nutshell?
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Julie Chen. As Duncan has mentioned, I was involved with two journals and not only one. So I counted that I have worked for Asian ethnicity for nearly nine years. And I just stepped down mm. literally one month ago. And I was the chief editor. And I would say Asian ethnicity is an Asian study journal. And so there are a lot of interdisciplinary authors who will submit to Asian ethnicity, ranging from anthropology, political scientists, geographers, historians, to sometimes even literary people. And as long as their paper is related to ethnicity of Asia. So that was very interdisciplinary. And Asian ethnicity is with Taylor and Francis. It's not an SSCI journal, so not in the Social Science Citation Index yet, but it has been in focus and also Mm -hmm. this emerging social science index for several years. Mm -hmm. So that was Asian ethnicity, my longest involvement. And with Journal of Chinese Political Science, it's an SSCI journal, and I'm still one of the editors our chief editor is based in america in china so i would say this journal is a very political science oriented and they love quantitative kind of paper so i have been involved with really two different kinds of journal and they have different orientation and interest so maybe later i can compare a bit and share my experience because it really depends on what kind of paper you are producing and then you should think which kind of journal would be more suitable for you is that okay duncan
0: whatever you Want to share with us? Yes, we will want to draw you out on that. You know what's happening with this quantitative turn and so on, because this is happening to other journals that we could mention. I'm on the editorial board of one Asian Survey, which seems to have moved in a much more quantitative direction over the past year or two, and that creates opportunities and challenges for those of us in Asian studies. So that's a very interesting question in its own right. Thanks a lot, Julie. Yeah, Hyunggu, will you (laughs) share with us your words of wisdom? So a lot of this
2: information is available on the website, but just very quickly, I'll go over the profile of the journal the subject coverage, the organization, and some personal observations. Mm-hmm. So first, the journal, as Professor McCargo mentioned, has been around since 1928, and it's a quarterly, so it publishes mm-hmm. four times a year. So this works out to about 20 articles or 150 book reviews per year, and there's usually one or two special issues per year. But unlike most journals, the editor, that is to say me, remains involved at every stage. So it's not a subcontracting arrangement. We maintain final decision rights. So second, in terms of coverage, we are a multidisciplinary or cross disciplinary social sciences journal focused on contemporary Asia and the Pacific. And the Pacific is metaphorical. So if you're covering India, the question isn't whether Indian Ocean is part of the Pacific, but whether it links to Asia and the Pacific. We're largely qualitative, but since 2010, I would say, we've been increasingly receiving and publishing quantitative approaches. And this is in part because although I'm a historian, I worked for three years at an economics institute in the 1990s in Japan, and quantitative approaches actually triggering me a nostalgic wave for the 90s. So this is part of the explanation. There are larger systemic issues, of course, behind this. Now, the organization is there's one editor, there's one managing editor who oversees the business arrangements. And there's an editorial assistant and seven associate editors, a larger executive committee, and a larger editorial board. So Duncan is part of the larger editorial board of the journal. We have a rejection rate of about 90%, which sounds more daunting than it actually is. So one of the benefits of this is that there's no backlog. So we're a journal that if your paper is accepted, your article is out within three to six months, not 12 to 24 months. We are and have been SSCI or JCR indexed from its inception. Now, finally, for a few opening personal observations, as Duncan mentioned, I've been editor since 2008. I joined the journal in 2002 as an associate editor when we were rebooting the entire organization. I think the short of it is intellectually rewarding in ways that are hard to describe, but also exhausting in ways that are hard to imagine. So if you've seen Blade Runner, you can imagine the Rutger Hauer character at the end launching into a speech about the shoulder of Orion on fire, this kind of thing. It's not quite as dramatic. However, I've been engaged with and exposed to a wider range of subjects, disciplines, methodology, theories, complaints, assumptions, presumptions, assertions and languages then I think might be humanly advisable. At the same time, I think it does keep me more curious and engaged than I could have imagined when I was initially starting out in academia. So I'm thankful and yet at the same time enslaved to the journal.
0: Thanks very much for those remarks. Yes, yeah, so thanks for those introductory comments. So let me ask my deliberately idiotic questions and see how you can help us. How do you decide which journal to submit to if you're an author in Asian studies? How would you go about making that decision?
1: I would ask myself the the main contribution of my paper, does it speak to Asian study kind of general journal audience or to a more political science kind of audience? So it depends on my research question and the contribution. Then I will then decide whether to go for a political science kind of journal or a general Asian study journal.
0: We had all these questions at the University of Leeds where I used to be. The research assessment exercise, And I believe that in the previous round, my colleague who was in charge of selecting articles to be nominated deleted anything on the list with the word either Asia or Pacific in the title. I was not at all happy on the grounds that these were area studies journals and were therefore not going to cut the mustard in the politics and international studies research excellence framework exercise. Which I violently disagreed with, but uh, you can imagine the conversations that resulted from that. But that's always one of our dilemmas. Are we going for a disciplinary journal or a journal with the word Asia or Pacific or China or something else in its title? Yeah. yeah,
2: I think, uh, Duncan, the reaction that your colleague had to the word Asia Pacific in the <laughs> title reflects a larger systemic issue with decline or even the death of literacy. So why bother to actually <laughs> read an article, right? And Well, I should say I promise not to list four things for every single question. I do, again, have four items I would list. So say the overarching terms, I think the choice should be determined by the contents of the journals within the last five years. Mm -hmm. If you look at it or if you read an article, do you enjoy the contents? Does it speak to you? Does it intersect with your intellectual interest, whether it's disciplinary or an area studies focused journal? The secondary criteria, I think, is bibliometrics. Now, mm-hmm. we can talk about impact factors if there are additional questions about this. It's a useful but extremely limited tool. So I think it's an inescapable reality that given the death of literacy, people just look at the impact factor number or whether journals mm-hmm. index. I happen to disagree with the approach, regardless of whether Pacific Affairs mm-hmm. ranking is high or not. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're on the job market, you can assume most people will not read what you've published so then impact factor does have to enter into your calculations or tenure for that matter. And then I would just point out here that the five-year impact factor, I think, has more intellectual meaning than the two-year impact factor Mm -hmm. in social sciences. The third or tertiary level is issues of reach. Mm -hmm. Now, this is actually even more complicated than the impact factor. But who is going to read the journal? So there are large corporations that are oligopolies within the market, and they do have extremely effective reach and distribution. Mm -hmm. Pacific Affairs is an independent standalone. Mm -hmm. So regardless of whether the article is actually noticeably more robust or not, Sometimes we're simply not in a journals or sort of libraries list because they're not paying for subscription access. So you have to think as a tertiary factor, you want to think about reach. For example, let's say you're a graduate student and one of your close friends is running a student journal. This actually raises some dilemmas. You put in a very good paper to a student Mm -hmm. journal when you know that it's not going to get read that much. So these are actually individual ethical choice and it operates at different levels. So, for example, I happen to actually enjoy reading Asian ethnicity. Thank you for all your hard work, Julie, on this. And you can imagine a large number of population in academia not bothering to read a journal simply because it's not indexed. And again, it's not the actual quality of the material. It's the depth of literacy driving certain behavioral patterns which then forces individuals to make choices along these lines. So reach is an issue. And then as a fourth supplementary level, I would actually encourage looking at publisher resources for how to choose journals. So almost every major publisher actually has web pages dedicated to the process, Mm. the logic protocols involved in choosing a journal. So I can point to something like Rutledge, Elsevier, Mm. Cambridge, Oxford. These are four Mm. of the biggest players on the market. They each have these guys for aspiring authors or even experienced authors.
0: Yeah, those are all really good points. For me, if I actually want people to read my articles, I need to pitch them in these journals that are in the space between political science and Asian studies. What are you looking for in a journal submission? I mean, when I was associate editor of JAS, I was reading, doing an initial read on 50 articles a year. It's probably gone up now. Those were just the more plausible submissions on Southeast Asia that JAS was getting in an average year back in about 10 years ago. How do you pick them out of the pile, the interesting ones from the, shall we say, the less interesting ones, just putting it diplomatically.
1: Shall I start? I recall (laughs) when the pandemic, Asian ethnicity started to receive triple numbers of submissions, Mm. and that was overwhelming. And then you had to really go through all these papers and make initial filtering before it is sent to peer review. I would say I haven't changed too much in terms of this. I always want to see that there is a new perspective presented or a new method. But I think in Asian study, you really see a really groundbreaking methods used. Mm-hmm. So that, I would say, is still more important. It's really a new perspective. I noticed there are a lot of authors submitting papers related to India, to Asian ethnicity points, a lot of Indian papers. And a lot of them uh, use very similar approach looking at the history of uh, one of these tribal conflicts or ethnic conflicts. And so that's just not enough. There are just too many similar papers, mm-hmm. too many similar arguments. I need to see something that is innovative even a controversial standpoint uh, would be even more interesting than just repeating what other people have said so for me innovation that's the key word
2: (laughs) yeah yeah i would just say that duncan has kindly sent some questions to guide our discussions (laughs) and then when i looked at them my reaction was that essentially we're going to be toggling from acceptable outstanding to problematic in terms (laughs) of the papers. So I'm going to stick with the acceptable for now. What is acceptable? So I should say that most journals have something called a desk or Mm pre-review. So the calculus is whether the papers were sending out to double-blind external reviewers or doing essentially pro bono work. So is it worth imposing on their time, although it is a service element, which is supposed to be essential to academia. But leaving that aside, there's different review stages, and we can get into details later. But as an editor, essentially, I'm looking for certain characteristics to see whether it's worth sending out for review and whether something might be plausible as a publication candidate. So the first area is, is there a clear question or puzzle or argument? Does the author? seem to know what they're doing or saying beyond identifying a lacuna? So Mm -hmm. identifying a lacuna is obviously important, but is there something else plus Mm -hmm. alpha? The second is, does the author actually understand the methods, theories, and empirical sources they're using? In history, you just interview people that are still alive who remember the event. If you're doing quantitative studies, then if it's under actually 1,000, but we'll say under 100, it's the methodology is problematic. If you're in anthropology, you can actually do very engaged research with just one or two people. It's just that you have to be able to explain to skeptics why studying one or two people is meaningful. So it's command of the method, to my mind, not one methodology being superior to another. Can you explain yourself? The third area is ideally, again, new information, innovation, but it's increasingly hard to do so because let's say previously, 50 years ago, there's three people who knew where Thailand was, for example, now there's 300 people working on related topics. So Mm -hmm. I think it's less new empirical information per se than if there's obviously some element of diligence or command of the material. And I think the fourth and final element is whether they've cited according to journal style guide. And you can say this seems rather mechanical and petty, but it's actually reflective of the seriousness which the author takes to journal's guidelines. So for example, in our case, we actually do accommodate in-text and Chicago style at the initial stage, but I actually prefer if someone makes an attempt to follow Chicago. Now, most authors actually don't quite follow Chicago, but that's very minor. It's the attempt that matters.
1: Maybe I can add a bit about the style and format. I know they are mechanical and very important, but at least for the two journals that are involved, I think we were not very strict with the format in the beginning. I know some journals even indicate on their website, you don't need to follow our format in the beginning, but at the end... If it's accepted, you have to turn your paper into our format. So I guess it's depending on different journals' policy. And Asian ethnicity has a really terrible style that they use endnotes. And most journal papers don't use endnotes. So I thought it wouldn't be nice to ask the author already to turn their paper according to our format. And then if their paper are rejected, they had to change it again for another mm. journal. So I try to show some mercy here. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think I shared with both of you that when I was with JAS, I would always ask the same two questions, which some of my editorial colleagues didn't agree with. I would always say, "Did I learn anything?" and "Where's the research?" And the second question relates to my increasing frustration that so many journal articles are glorified literature reviews, which my master's students here in Copenhagen can do brilliantly, but I keep waiting to get to the point. I'm counting. On what page are they going to start? getting into some substantive, either new argument or new material. Then I always ask, where's the research is actually my bottom line (laughs) question. Is it just me who thinks that?
2: Yeah, where's the research question is, I think, increasingly important when there's an emphasis on volume of production in an acceptable strata of journals. So people tend to engage in what's called salami publishing. We can discuss this in more detail if there's some interest, but the short of it is that there's too much regurgitation of newspaper articles. So usually mm-hmm. if I want to read the New York Times, The Guardian and any number of newspapers, I, do, I don't need someone to summarize these things for me. Mm-hmm. So for the research, I think is an important question, But of course, especially in these uh, pandemic times, it's harder to do ethnographic research, for example. Mm -hmm. So you have to form teams Mm -hmm. and you have to trust that your teammates have sound methodology and know how to read, interview interactions, so on and so forth. It's a challenge, which is why I say it's less new empirical information per se than some command of the materials. So if there is use of media articles, There's a deliberate understanding of why they're using a media article rather than an academic article, an archival source, so on and so forth. So what happens sometimes is the authors use an interview to substantiate a point that is about, let's say, market share of a company when all they have to do is look at a government report on different Mm -hmm. market shares of different companies for the sector. So I think command of the material, definitely. The other question, the first part of your two-part question, did I learn anything I think this is a bit trickier because one of the issues with reviewers is that too many reviewers actually don't read anything or haven't read anything in the last 20 years. So in that case, of (laughs) course, it's new for them. Now, all I have to do is look things up, all the digital tools at our disposal. We can find five articles or 10 articles on the same subject within the last 20 years. And my policy is to generally try to read all of these in order to assess whether I am learning anything new. And this relates to another problem that's, I think, burgeoning in academia, which is the school that I called, let's pretend no one else has ever written on the subject before, which means not engaging with an article that has the exact same subject, exact same argument. And I think we need to push ourselves as individuals, regardless of the pressures we're under, to at least acknowledge, let's say, convergence or consilience. And also, if there is divergence, rather than avoiding acknowledging this divergence, politely saying, I happen to disagree, or maybe I'm extending the argument or qualifying, then at least we're clear about our position within the larger field or literature
0: this is the thing I was hinting at at the beginning you're kind of well known for this so you've alarmed various indonesia specialists for example by going into the indonesian literature and discovering 10 articles that they hadn't referred to in indonesian and coming back at them and saying well I just found all this stuff and I'm actually not a specialist on indonesia but I found 10 articles in Indonesian you haven't mentioned so you're claiming that this isn't there so you seem to take incredible pains to do this kind of thing but you really demonstrate the sloppiness of some people's (laughs) methods by doing that
2: well I would say that it's less that I'm interested in revealing sloppiness, but actually urging more precision. So if you say, for example, there has not been anything in English on the subject, Mm -hmm. fine. If there are 10 articles on Indonesian on different cities on the same subject, then I think, well, there has to be some qualification. And also, I should say that I'm very careful to note that not everything in in one language is inherently good because mm-hmm. of the language of publication. So you can imagine right. there's a range of quality in English or French. Same with Indonesian if you actually read through the articles. Right. And then there's plenty of cases of what could be called plagiarism probably is the easiest word. But right. yeah, there's some articles that are published in English like sensor be stated in Indonesian. Yes. So this flow yeah. of illiteracy is global. There are inequalities in hierarchies, but I think we have to be careful with our own engagement with every body of literature.
0: These are pretty good points. So- yeah, Julie.
1: I just follow up a bit on the quality. I'm thinking I mentioned that I'm also involved with another journal, which is more political science related. and It has a very different approach. I'm not so sure how many of our audience here have this kind of dilemma that maybe your, your work is more related to certain social science disciplines. Our editor has a very harsh policy, and that is, I would say, if your paper does not really follow this kind of American-style, competitive structure and methodology, you would be rejected immediately. This is nearly 99. We used to be more linear, so 90%. <laughs> but since we become SSCI journal, our chief editor has asked us to be even more strict, so you, you could argue this is really not fair. This is just some kind of bias towards certain kind of research methods. Mm. But certain journal does have that kind of stance and policy. So mm. again, this is referring back, you really need to understand the journal and read it over and to see, it, does this fit with my kind mm. of work and my belief? Right. So you really have to ask yourself whether this is where you want to go. And I recall that, Duncan, you were talking about Asian survey that has these trees to quantitative turn. Mm-hmm. I recall, and you can check me, because I published a quantitative paper in Asian survey a bit long time ago, and there was a long mathematical formula. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we make a compromise because the journal editor told us this doesn't really fit with our identity. So we make a compromise by putting that in the appendix in the Mm -hmm. end. So I'm not so sure about the new trees in Asian survey. Now, do they welcome the mathematic formula in text or not?
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's the way it's going. The issue came up about
2: timing. The reason why I said earlier that you should probably look at articles within the last five years Mm -hmm. as initial check window is that editorial teams do change and do sometimes bring in new turns or policies or philosophies with them. So let's say a journal does have Asian survey publishes update articles at the end of the year, and then there's a new editor and editorial team in place, then of course they may be more inclined to publish quantitative materials. It's ideally good idea to think about the last five years if you're going to submit to a journal rather than let's say you know 20 years ago right or 10 years ago
0: so so. right Yeah. And this was a problem we had at the Journal of Asian Studies too, because when I first joined the team, it had been edited by a historian of China for some years. And people had the idea it was a history journal and it was a China journal. And I was going around begging people to submit stuff on Southeast Asia. They'll never accept it in JAS. It's a Chinese history journal in all but name. And it took us years to overcome that kind of conception. So you're always struggling against, on the one hand, you want to look at what people have submitted, but you also need to benchmark that against what the editors are signaling they want, because there can be a mismatch between the two things. A journal becomes known for being a certain kind of journal, and the editors are more captive than they might seem. They seem to have a lot of power for those of us who are trying to get our articles published, but you can only publish the articles you get, right? So you need to have the right submissions in order to change the style of the journal. That wasn't a question I gave you in advance, but does anybody have a thought about that?
1: Yeah, for instance, now I stepped down from Asian ethnicity, and in the past, I would say for three generations of Asian ethnicity, we always have China kind of experts who are running the journal. Originated in Australia, that was a China expert, and then etc, etc. But it is the first time now the Asian ethnicity is run by a new team, and they are experts of Southeast Asia. So I think the direction is going to change and the readership will change. I know it's good to expand the the scope of the journal.
2: And I would just say that while a lot of the conversation will naturally focus on authors, editors probably are, in relative terms, under-trained as well. So what happens is that there's a tendency to follow industry or discipline standard without much thought because they need to rise in the bibliometric tables. There's sometimes a tendency to embrace eclecticism without thought. So why do you have variety? What's the benefit? What kind of conversations Mm. are trying Mm. to spark? I do think the tendency of most editorial teams to burn out between three to five years undermines long-term vision, continuity, Mm. and also informed challenges to industry or discipline norms. And I should say I completely understand why editors want to step down after three to five years. It's just I haven't, but I'm sympathetic to editors burning out. But having said that, as a collective, we do need to be understanding what critical junctures we can promote diversity that's meaningful rather than simply following mm-hmm. the trend or the norm.
0: We all need journal editors, but yeah, it's a bit like being department chair, which I was in Leeds twice. I'm very happy to have done it, and I'm very happy someone else is doing it now, and I'm very happy I'm not doing it at the moment. You know, We need good people in these jobs, but the answer can't always be that we do them ourselves because we have, also have to get up with other things. So like various other questions, uh, some of which are kind of interrelated about one of them is what makes a really outstanding article, and maybe you've hinted at the answers to that already in the answers to the last question. Does anyone want to say anything more about that?
1: Hmm, outstanding. (laughs) (laughs) Nowadays, it's really not that easy. A lot of things have been written, and you might provide one or two different new perspectives, but how does that count as outstanding? Of course, uh, one tricky way is you look at the citation and how many people have really downloaded that's what, how I look at it. I don't even know if that's really fair. We do have some popular orders, perhaps because their paper were open access, because mm. they pay for this golden... And so they have like thousands of download rate. I don't know. I haven't really seen something that I would say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> maybe it's because Asian ethnicity was not even an SSCI journal. So it does have its maybe different story.
0: <laughs> so yeah. the-
2: Simple, I suppose metric for outstanding is that we do have, like many other journals, an outstanding article of the year award. It's called the William Holland Prize for our longest serving past editor. Now, I should say that I don't participate in the voting. What happens is associate editors come up with a shortlist. Mm-hmm. We usually discuss in person, and then the shortlist is circulated to a larger editorial board mm-hmm. for voting. Now, I should say that The reason why I don't participate is I have seen all the papers in different incarnations. So to quote Dali, (laughs) perfection should not be feared because it's not attainable, meaning there's no such thing as a perfect article. (laughs) What I have seen is some articles that are encased in very polished, beautiful prose. And I think that does tend to carry with many readers or the novelty of a subject. I happen to actually think that those are two important elements, novelty of a subject and polished, logically-flowing prose. But sometimes what you see is that articles have great writing, but rather precarious logical structures. Mm -hmm. So I tend to look for all the issues or the characters that we talked about, but also not just writing as a cover, but writing as a supplement to a buttress for the logic. So I could be accused of logocentrism, but it's not Mm -hmm. a certain method I'm interested in. I'm interested in internal consistency logical consistency, and also contextualization, differentiation. So I would say that most outstanding quote-unquote articles do have a level of English writing that carries the argument beyond a certain specific disciplinary audience. So that is, I think, a common trait. Also, sorry, I just saw a question Hmm. on the chat. It's a question, I'm just going to read it very quickly. How do you choose reviewers? And this is actually a very good question Uh because there's lots of issues with reviewers. But generally speaking, I actually read what the possible reviewer has published if I'm recommended reviewer. If the person has written on five really exciting subjects and I read them and I think they're actually glorified op eds, there's a place for glorified op eds, mind you, but mm-hmm. then I think, well, is this the right person mm-hmm. or a particular manuscript? The second important element is availability. So essentially, the whole system is based on pro bono work that is monetized by large publishers, or in Pacifica First case, Mm -hmm. just by us to Mm -hmm. maintain operations. But I think availability is an issue. So for authors who haven't reviewed, it's very easy to get, I think, human to be upset by certain kinds of reviews. But it's very difficult to find qualified reviewers who can deliver on time because everyone's essentially overtaxed. And Mm -hmm. also, there's very little training and how to review. Something that comes up occasionally, people are not aware that you should not submit the same paper to two journals at the same time. So it can be a serial submitter to the same paper, but you shouldn't submit the same paper to several different journals at the same time because it's based on this unwritten rule that's rarely taught in graduate seminars, at least in North America, (laughs) which is that each journal is investing human Mm -hmm. resources into reviewing your paper. They're giving you feedback in ways that maybe your advisor never would or could, because they're kind of there to support you, believe it or not. Yes. Right. So that's something that should be clarified in almost every single seminar. and then there is essentially a lingua franca in all of academia. So we can call it vaguely cultural or maybe explicitly cultural imperialist or not, but it's unavoidable right now. It is English. Mm-hmm. So if you have Dane speaking and English, the Icelanders, it's lingua franca. So are certain people with more dexterity and precision, in their syntax, at an advantage? Yes. Then what can you do? Well, we can complain about it, but what we can do is simply improve our writing, regardless of the language. So let's say you want to write in Indonesian and English. I think it's up to us to try to improve our... Writing in those two languages it's very difficult, I should say. I'm very sympathetic to typos, by the way. As someone with declining eyesight, I claim typos are unavoidable. It's not mm. the typo, it's basic logical flow and command of syntax. I think that's key. So I hope that answers the questions.
0: Yeah, well, we can take a few more questions from the chat in a minute. Let me just ask you because you brought this up about the writing thing. So a couple of years ago, I tried an article out about the persistence of military coups on two political science journals. I didn't send it to an Asian studies journal because it was more comparative. From both of them, I got desk rejections, immediate desk rejections. And one of them explicitly said, This is not an article, but an essay. I would actually like to write essays because I would like to write things that people like to read. And it's almost as though, and this is what I try to do. And I have to confess that I started off as a student of English literature and I really want to be a writer. And I ended up becoming an academic by mistake, which is something I'm not supposed to admit as a political scientist. But it's almost like if you write something too readable, you're going to be viewed with suspicion. Am I right about this? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, right.
2: (laughs) I should say not by me, not by me personally, but I think there are discipline norms that that are normalized, that are unquestioned and unchallenged, that Mm. we regurgitate with great enthusiasm. Let's say when I gave a talk, this is in the 90s, in a history forum, people said there are too many numbers. When I gave the same talk at an economics forum, they said there are not enough numbers and too many names. So there are these ingrained knee-jerk reactions. And I think in political science, for example, Even if there is more variety in Europe and the UK than North America, I'd like to think, the North American norm is that you need a clear dependent variable, independent variables, and ideally intervening variables and regressions, display command of all the coding methods, including hidden Markov and so on and so forth. So if you don't speak that language, then immediately there's a knee-jerk reaction against it, rather than the reaction that by editors should be, what is this essay trying to tell me? regardless of the jargon. So I just want to say something that does come up even in area studies. So within Asian studies, we take it for granted. that Let's say we're writing a paper on Singapore, then we would specify it's electoral politics in Singapore. But if you look at a lot of the articles on, let's say, China and Africa, Mm. I would encourage you to check how many of the Africa countries actually are based on single case studies, and there's no discussion of representativeness. So the Mozambique economy is not the same as Equatorial Guinea, right, and right. they speak different language about well, Portuguese versus Spanish legacies. So we can actually do better in area studies, however that's defined. Mm-hmm. But in disciplines, there's also this hidden problem with representativeness. So for example, there's an assertion of a universal model of populism. If you look at the empirical core, it's a survey of 20 people. And I'm just thinking of this example off the top of my head, Warden in Northern mm. Netherlands, right? This kind of thing. So the actual core is small. There's an encouragement to make a universal grand claim out of it. And I think we want to push all disciplines to be careful and precise in positioning.
1: Yeah, I actually want to kind of continue our discussion about writing and language. Mm-hmm. This is something that hasn't really been agreed upon even among editors in Asian ethnicity until today. And you notice also in today our audience, a lot of them are not native English speakers. Of course. Of course, it is important to have well-written academic paper. And However, a lot of authors, they might face this kind of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Maybe students in Nordic countries don't have that much difficulty, but you can imagine a lot of Asian scholars. So how strict are you in terms of this English writing? In Asian ethnicity, we have a lot of debates about this. Actually, some of our editors who are prestigious scholars, they think, it is not important to write in beautiful English. Mm. What is important is really the case that you are presenting, and they show also sympathy to others from Mongolia, Indonesia, who might lack the capacity to present themselves so well in English. So some of our editors really fight against this idea. But we are in this, like you said, this is a lingua franca of the world. Like me, I would insist you really have to present certain level of a. Uh, English fluency. So I wonder how you make your decisions in Asian Pacific affairs Mm. or other journals?
2: I think we're reasonably flexible, but we want, let's say, 80% accuracy in grammar. So let's say A paper has more than 20% grammatical errors in nearly every sentence, then it's a problem. We have different copy editors and proof readers. There are different stages in the process. Reviewers, of course, associate editors and the editor. But let's say the cutoff point is 80% or so for grammatical errors. The actual beauty of the prose, I think, is a very subjective aspects. So I don't actually take that into account too much. If I like it, it helps, of course. If I happen to enjoy reading a paper, well, very rare, but it does happen, then it's a plus. Uh, if you think about novels, for example, if you read the F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, the plot has almost zero progress. But mm-hmm. the beauty in the prose of describing rather mundane things, I think, is mm-hmm. undeniable. But mm-hmm. then if your article has no progress and the prose is beautiful, is that going to help you publish? I would say no. So
0: obviously there's a balance required. Great. Yeah. We can have a lot of fun with this conversation and we could go on a long time. I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll invite questions from the audience. So if anybody else wants to start posing anything, please pose your questions in the Q&A rather than the chat, because then that's easier for us to see it all in one place. And let me ask just one last question, which may be in the minds of many people tuning in here. We've all had these I mentioned my mortifying double desk rejection of my brilliant essay about uh, why military coups are still happening. What do you do when you get these crushing, rejections, or worse still, people who don't seem to have understood what the point of your paper was, which applies to a significant proportion of reviewer reports. And then editors who I kind of expect that, you know, the best editors I've worked with have taken these reviewers' reports and kind of summarized them and said, basically, what you really need to do is take notice of reviewer B. And you don't say reviewer A is out to lunch, but you say, I would place most of your emphasis on responding to reviewer Bs. But some editors don't do that. they just send you these things and they say, I'm not interested, or they say, revise and resubmit without giving you the slightest clue which of these completely contradictory points in these, in one case, five reviews, <laughs> I'd got the article published in the end, but five reviews, all telling me different things that I needed to do with the paper. And I didn't get from the editor, I'm broadly more sympathetic to reviewers one, two, and three, and forget about four and five. So. How should people handle these things and how do you as editors try to massage these difficult messages in the best possible way, whether you're going for an R&R or just the rejection?
2: The first issue, I think, is whether reviewers are competent or not. And I think we have to start with the acknowledgement that a significant proportion of editors have no idea what they're doing. And I say (laughs) this with all due respect, or they're interested in doing something that is rational, but I think problematic in the long run, which is minimize the investment of their time and maximize their personal return. So I think both are problematic. Now, this is not to say that for every single decision I make, I provide guidance. I think Duncan mentioned I write long letters. So the average is five to seven pages. So I stop myself at 10 single single-space pages. It's not that I write letters for every single one, but then my shortcut around problematic reviews, which are actually a significant proportion of the total, is to actually read the paper myself and read the reviews and do research on each subject. Now, is this draining when you're dealing with multiple disciplines and languages Mm -hmm. and areas? Yes. Is it good for my curiosity? Yes. So there's only one way to really push the quality of a journal's contents upwards, and it's for the editor to be engaged with each plausible paper, not every single paper. It's not possible with the volume of submission. So that way you control for, I think, problematically short reviews. Now, what do you do when you get problematic with short reviews? The first issue is to start with the realization that for any well-run journal, that the editor should explicitly retain all final control. So you see on Twitter, oh, I had two revised and you know resubmits from the reviewers and the editor rejected it. Well as long as the editor is able to explain why they rejected the paper, mm-hmm. it's the editor's right. Similarly, when they get a bad or negative review that's literally two sentences, that is the editor's right to say, let's throw out this useless review. We're going to blacklist this person. I see some potential for reasons A, B, C, but within the two sentences, there is some utility, You know that kind of thing. And then in the larger scale of things, The first thing you can do is never react immediately to any rejection or negative review. It's human to be annoyed at Mm. readers who are clearly not familiar with your subject, but pretend to. There are also cases where they haven't read the paper clearly. It's unprofessional and unethical to do these kinds of reviews, but we're clogged. The system is clogged with these things. So what do you do? Never react in anger. Never accuse the journal of being ideologically biased. It could be that they are or methodologically ossified and blinkered it could be they are but i think it's important to to, i think nurture your anger but channel it in productive ways so there's certain options okay so if it's a revise and resubmit it's a revise and resubmit you so read the letter carefully never respond within 24 hours and say these these are rubbish reviews even if Mm -hmm. that's right okay Mm -hmm. if you're going to respond wait until you're and then take the comments and try to strengthen your paper. This is really the most useful point, is that even if the comment is really silly, you can say, well, the person didn't explain the methodology, and you explained it, but in page 10, you might think not about increasing the font size to 24, but no, moving the section up front, maybe using signposting that allows readers with limited attention spans or energy to actually latch on to the signpost, right? Mm-hmm. So there are ways to use even almost useless reviews in useful ways to improve your paper so what you don't want to do is take your paper you got rejected submit the exact same thing to another journal right because all this does is create more labor for yourself more psychological damage more labor for the journals you want to think about the ways the process can help you strengthen your profile as a scholar in terms of skills not just publications there are also multiple resources mainly for sciences on how to handle rejections. So I have to confess, especially in the pandemic here, I've had to encourage some authors to look and read these resources. So I understand frustration, it's
0: human. Thanks so much. There's some really, really good uh, points you made there. Yeah, Julie.
2: Well, I kind of follow
1: up, and I also think we have a lot of students here. I want to use the example of one of my doctoral students, she submitted her paper to a very good journal. It has been under review, I think, for at least two years, and she has been asked to revise this five times. So she got very frustrated each time coming back to me and saying, Can I fight back? I said, No. It's very nice that they are still reviewing your paper and giving you those comments. So just follow them and answer each of these questions and critiques and explain why you can change or you cannot change. So it is still going on, but I think she has learned a lot in this process and also to refine her thinking and her work. So we should really not panic when you receive really harsh criticism or rejection later. There are opportunities for you to improve.
2: The maximum number right. of reviewers yeah. should be around two or three, and the editors should get involved. When they get above four, I think you're inviting a certain level of randomness that becomes unmanageable. So I'm just surprised that's the way some journals. Yeah.
1: I'm really surprised, too. And I was thinking, well, we have to respect that was the editor's decision. I didn't get involved. But I know as an editor, I have even got letters from the supervisors of the order complaining why we make certain editorial decisions concerning the students' paper submitted to our journal.
0: Yeah, I was happy that I've been through that brutal process in the end, but it did seem a little bit unnecessary to me. Okay, we've got lots of questions coming in. The next question relates to some of the discussion that we've just been having about English. Is recent research about published authors in certain journals, including Asian Studies' white English speakers. Following what Professor Chen was saying, do you think English writing skill is a factor in that?
1: Not that important anymore. I think nowadays, if we are at this stage, most people can write reasonably
2: okay. English paper.
0: Do you think it's still the case in Asian studies that the predominance of published authors who were native English speakers?
2: Yeah, I would just encourage each person who has this question to look at the contents of the journal. I can't speak for every journal, but for Pacific Affairs, it's a non-issue. The editorial board is diverse, deliberately so, and so is the author base. Actually, I would say we publish from more authors based in Asian, quote-unquote, institutions than North American ones Mm -hmm. for various reasons. It's it's in part to do with bibliometrics and the imperial spread of research assessment exercise Mm -hmm. like
0: entities so it's not an issue okay it's interesting to hear a discussion in NIAS about the needs the market experience from the editors which market do you want to target are we what kind of readership are we targeting for example scandinavian readers chinese readers asian readers different regions have different implicit rules and assumptions
1: well asian ethnicity i think the readers are from everywhere journal Mm. chinese political science is also everywhere but has a target on political scientists i think that's clear so they are international minded journal. You know, one is run by Rowlich, another is run by Springer.
2: Yeah. So yeah. when I talk about the market, it's about publishing for specific journals. I would say the readership, as Julie said, is international and multidisciplinary in most cases. So let's say for Pacific Affairs, we get about 350,000 accesses per year, 350,000. We don't right. track individual IP. But you can track things through SNS markers and so on and so forth. Okay, but the number of subscriptions we have is only 500. So 350,000 accesses 500 paying subscribers. Okay, what's the problem? People are reading things, but After a two-year window, because we have a two-year essentially freeze for people who are not paying, which affects our impact factor. And this is in part not because of the quantity or quality, I would say, but it's because we're not affiliated with a major publisher. Rutledge and Springer are just two of a larger ocean of major players. The Cambridge and Oxford are the two university presses that have market-sized cloud and of essentially mirroring with variation strategies that are being implemented by something like a Rutledge or Elsevier, so on and so forth. So Pacific affairs is essentially a microbe in a world of whales in terms of market size. In terms of quality, I would like to think it has much bigger reach, as indicated by the 350,000 access every single year. Okay, now who actually reads it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard to know. We've done surveys in the past. We sometimes ask our editorial board to spread the news or do an informal survey or conversation with the graduate students. But I have to say, it's very difficult to know who reads it because the number of Inappropriate submissions indicates that we do actually catch, inappropriate in terms of subject matter, a wider range of readers than I can even begin to imagine. So if someone says, I would like to submit a paper on Ethiopia-Eritrea conflict, I have to ask myself, how did they come across Mm. Pacific affairs? Why did they express interest? Although we don't cover the
0: northeastern Africa conflicts, right? So hard to say. Right. I mean, when I'm writing an article about protests in Thailand, my main audience is in Thailand. So I'm British and I'm sitting here in Denmark, heading a Nordic Institute. My audience is in North America, Australia, Southeast Asia, the Nordic region, Europe. I mean, we see it with events like this. Afterwards, we'll check the participant list and see where people come from. It's quite extraordinary. So I think... I no longer have an idea of targeting articles to a particular national or regional audience. It's obsolete in my own thinking. The only audience I am very deliberately aware of is the Thai audience, because they're going to be the biggest audience for anything on Thailand. And that's most of what I write. But I certainly don't have the idea that the primary audience is in any particular part of the world. I don't know what Julie here.
1: In fact, Taylor and Francis and Springer, these kind of big companies, they have a very in-depth analysis of where people download their paper and subscribe to their journal. And I received this kind of confidential reports exactly. every yep. year so right. let me just summarize for asian ethnicity because this was originating in australia so i think until today the, uh, australia is still the main country where people mm. down subscribe to the journal and download the paper and some singaporean universities so it's quite asia focused but again i think there are readers from all over the world i just mentioned australia and singapore mm-hmm. is these two really super clear market but definitely the company strategy is international
2: So I think Rutledge, although we're not affiliated with the publisher, we're in conversation with multiple publishers. So I have seen some of these reports. Mm -hmm. And one thing that does not surprise me in any way is that Rutledge has identified Indonesia and Vietnam and and to a lesser extent Thailand as high growth markets for the future. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if we do publish an article in Indonesia, the SNS activity on Indonesian-based feeds is... I think exponentially larger than anything in North America. So I think geographic audiences are less bound, even if there's clear patterns than we might imagine. I think disciplinary audiences are still a main issue. So who are we trying to speak with? Who's the conversation with? But I think though that the question of, let's say spatial audiences might have more salience for something like, I happened to read for this journal, it's called Scandinavian Journal of History. So is then the most of the audience in Scandinavia or right. if there's a student journal, then who's the audience? This kind of thing. So I think there are different journals that are not necessarily listed in the indexes or with the large publisher. Scandinavian Journal of History is affiliated with a large publisher, by the way. But there are some journals that have to ask themselves a the question like how do we grow? So that's a different matter, I think, mainly for editors
0: to deal with. Right. It is all very interesting. It's not always exactly how we'd imagine when we do get this detailed breakdown. But what's definitely happening across Southeast Asia is if a new article is published on a topical subject that has a bit of a larger audience than the immediate academic fraternity, like some election or protest movement or whatever, it's going out on social media and people are not learning about it from academic sources at all. (laughs) Maybe we don't even know because those people are downloading it and then sharing those PDFs and what have you in ways that we can't even imagine. So it's possible that we're not even beginning to track a lot of what is going on through these various social media platforms. And the same thing happens with NIAS events. So I know we did a Burma coup event and people in Burma were watching it who were not registered for our event. It was somehow it was being channeled from somewhere and reposted on Facebook Live by means that I don't understand. So even though the publishers can give you all this data, I don't think it's any longer really telling us who's reading the stuff.
1: I'm just looking at our audience and thinking who they are and what they might be interested in.
0: Well, if you were a, a grad student wanting to get an article published, should they be shooting for journals like yours or should they be looking at these sort of student journals or what would your advice be to them?
1: I think they can try Asian ethnicity, this kind of journal, which is not an SSD journal yet. So it's not mm. that difficult. But it is still challenging. After all, it is still an international academic journal. But trying a student journal, I would say that you really limit your leadership. and Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be counted as something too significant on your CV, unfortunately.
0: Right. I feel torn between encouraging people to go for the best that they can and not wanting to bombard the likes of you with more and more submissions that are not too likely to be accepted. But um, it's a dilemma, isn't it?
2: This is actually a very intriguing question, because what Julia outlined is what I call the incremental approach, build up mm-hmm. your confidence and experience. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you think about academic careers, there's pros and cons to each state. So let's say you're a PhD student who's finished mm-hmm. their fieldwork. It's quite possible that you have access to more in-depth, recent, empirical information than someone who's been in the office virtually yeah. or physically. For the last 20 years, we'll say as a rough number. So when people look at the contents of the art of civic affairs and say, oh, there are many Ph.D. students who've published, Mm -hmm. the usual line is to think that I have an agenda to promote Mm -hmm. Ph.D. student publishing. I'm sorry, but I do not. I have an agenda interest in promoting publishing, regardless of the identity of the author. So I have rejected papers at the desk stage by some people who published multiple articles and books on the subject, they just couldn't see why they would submit this particular paper to us, C'est la vie. Right. And the reason right. why PhD students were published in Pacific Affairs is not because they're PhD students. I'm sorry, our identity right. is not a major factor. Well, I mean, yep. if you're from a very underrepresented country, possibly. It's because mm-hmm. there was a strength in the paper that allowed it to survive a rigorous review process. So, how do you strategize? go from the top and trickle down, let's say you aim for the top SSCI index journals, you get rejected, you can always move down if you feel right. psychologically prepared to deal with a whole range of reviews. Well, I have to say probably rejections are hard for anybody, mm-hmm. regardless of the experience. So I'm not sure. I mean, it really depends on your approach and personality. The role of student journals or regional journals or the journal that your best friend or your family member is editing, if it's <laughs> not indexed for circulating at all is actually trickier because I have to say, I've generally gone for the irrational choice. Student journals, as long as they know what they're doing, should be supported. Startup journals, as long as they know what they're doing, should be supported, even if there's no name. It's not just a platform for the editor's self-promotion and all these other things. I would suggest consulting with your advisors, but thinking also on your
0: own. These are all really good points. And it's the same reason why I never favor having so-called young scholars panels in conferences, because usually the PhD students are the ones who have the good work. And like, we go to AAS and we see people like me chairing panels and commenting on other people's papers <laughs> uh, because we haven't got any new work to present and giving grad students a hard time who've actually done some really interesting work. So I often feel like the PhD students have better papers than the senior professor's
2: Well, I think also that professors, advisors have a role to play in this, in that sometimes they'll read a good paper by an MA student or PhD student or an undergrad, and they'll just say, you should publish. I'm sorry, but that's not sufficient. You have to help prepare students who are entirely unfamiliar with this world on how to publish.
0: Yeah, we need guidance. Okay, we have another question came in. Everybody wants this coveted SSCI status. How do you maintain it? Is there any risk that SSCI status can be taken away once you've got it?
2: So the simple answer is that, yes, SSCI status can be taken away. Basically, it's a corporation that monetizes these rankings. So (laughs) if you look at any ranking, the first reaction should be what could be potentially useful, but as a heuristic, it's usually a monetizing Mm -hmm. strategy. But with all due respect to think tanks, of course, if you have a think tank, you want to raise a profile, maybe monetize content so you have a ranking, global ranking of this or that. So Clarivate is a small company affiliated with Thomson Reuters. They run the SSCI system. There's alternative systems. You can lose it if they allegedly find evidence of gaming the system, promoting, enforcing self-citations, this kind of thing. Now, the reality is that the check is so unthorough that it's almost meaningless. So the journals at the bottom of the ranks mm. tend to sometimes fall in and out. It's like, I had to be reductionist. It's like football, soccer, Premier League, First Division, Bundesliga. <laughs> it's, it's obviously not that simple, but what happens is the lower teams tend to get targeted more for these checks. So mm-hmm. I have to say Pacific Affairs has never even been remotely in danger of losing it. But also, I don't actually encourage self-citation as a matter of practice. If there's a conversation, meaningful one, then of course I would encourage citation, but not because it's going to help our two-year or five-year impact factor. the impact factor is just two years model imported from the sciences, where the turnover in the volume of publishing is mm-hmm. incomparably larger than social sciences. So the SSCI, I think, can be useful as a tool not for measuring the quality, but perhaps distribution of a journal. It just means that people are conditioned to cite it, or that they're simply citing it because it's available to them. And also as a marker for what the worst publishable paper might be of a lower standard than the journals that are indexed. So can you find brilliant articles in Asian ethnicity? The answer is yes, of course. The journal does not have to be indexed at the top tier to produce high quality. Now, is the weakest article in a non-indexed journal at the same level as the weakest article in an indexed journal? And the answer I have to say is probably not. So the difference is in the bottom tier, not the top. Uh, If you're interested in bibliometrics, of course, there's a lot of literature On this, and their journal is devoted to analyzing scholarly communication and publishing. So you can actually read about different approaches to parsing impact factors.
1: I am just wondering because now we're talking about these index factors. Maybe we can share with our audience here what is a good impact factor? I noticed that Pacific Affairs are 1.2 something. So how do we read that number? (laughs) I think this is quite puzzling for a lot of our. PhD
2: students.
0: I can't say I understand it very well. So anyone who can explain that to me would be delighted.
2: So the the simple answer is that the absolute numbers are meaningless. So if you're in psychology (laughs) or economics, all political scientists have negligible impact factors. If you're in medicine, psychology is negligible. So there's essentially two large fields, science, technology, engineering, medicine, STEM fields, and SSH, the social science of humanities. So in general, the sciences, the STEM fields will have higher impact factors. And then you get psychology, economics, and political science is quite a drop-off, sociology, and then anthropology, interdisciplinary studies, so on and so forth. So the absolute numbers don't mean that much. Now, do the relative rankings within each field matter? I have to say again, to be honest, no. No. You still have to actually read the articles. And what happens is that many journal editors do, in fact, promote self-citation. So you cite an article from your own pages within the last two years, and it automatically pushes up the impact factor rating. And given that the number of citations compared to sciences is small, and we'll say area studies... What this means is that you enforce self-citations on maybe five cases, immediately move up about seven ranks in relative league tables. So we're talking about very small numbers, I have to say, for area studies or most social sciences. So the impact factor itself is not something you need to worry about. What you might want to do is look for the five-year impact factor. So an impact factor essentially measures the number of times the journal itself and other journals or publications have cited articles published In the journal within the last two years only, last two years, a five year impact factor covers the number of citations to publications in that journal within the last five years. So if you think about a reasonably good quality article having longer half-lives, then it seems to me given turnaround times in social sciences, A five-year impact factor actually has a little bit more meaning than a two-year impact
0: factor. That's really useful. I've suddenly understood why not that long ago a certain journal editor asked me to cite an article from the same journal from a couple of years previously, which seemed a little bit random. But now I get it. There was a real logic to that we're approaching the end of our discussion i must say the time has flown because we've been having so much fun talking about all this stuff it's been a really really fascinating conversation which i hope we can continue and indeed that we can host both of you who are separately or together back in copenhagen before too long and continue these discussions about these and other matters but this has been really fantastic so thanks so much for both of our speakers we can tell that you're really just the kind of editors we'd like to be dealing with as opposed to those other kind of editors that we won't talk about who don't seem to be really interested in us and don't seem to see things from our point of view as authors. A lot of humanity and a lot of empathy comes across in your comments and responses, which I think is really, really great to hear because sometimes we feel as though we're struggling against a a machine when we try to advance ourselves academically. And actually there are real people who care about what they're doing and, and are really very, very interested in us authors and in the work that we're producing. So this has been fantastic to hear. Cliff, thanks very, very much indeed. Uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: Thank you. Yes, thank you.
0: I'm Duncan Macargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. and I've been talking to two Asian studies journal editors, Julie Wen Chen, until recently the editor of Asian Ethnicity, and Hyungu Lin the long-serving editor of Pacific Affairs. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.